Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist, writer, and here to awkwardly discuss lust and chastity today. Yes, it is the very last episode in the Lenten Seven Capital Vices and Their Remedies series, and it's time to talk about the last of the seven capital vices, lust. I promise not to be like the PE teacher in the teen classic movie Mean Girls, or basically any teen movie who's just like, sex, don't have it. Despite the popularity amongst many Christians of abstinence-only sex education, there's a very good reason why, in the ancient tradition, the remedy to lust is not abstinence, but chastity, which is quite different. Note, the remedy is also not modesty, which is often what we offer today in our culture. We will dig more into that in a minute. So what is lust? Lust, in a nutshell, is disordered sexual desire, either inordinate in general, for the wrong people at the wrong place and time, obsessive or possessive, or sexual desire ordered towards power or pleasure, not loving intimacy. Medieval English folk often called it lechery, which is kind of a fun word, but I'm going to stick with lust. Today we live in a funny, complex relationship with lust. It's the vice that the church often finds itself fixated upon, especially regarding the so-called culture wars. Rebecca Conondike de Young points out how often the church centers sex in its discussion of culture. In reality, Scripture often points us towards greed or idolatry in discussions of culture. So there's this interesting clash going on between the values that are, uh, that are foremost in the scriptures and the values that come to the top of our daily living together. Curiously, many Christians, despite um, strong ideas about sexual ethics, enthusiastically defend an unabashedly lecherous ex-president. Christians are now dealing with, or worse, avoiding dealing with, the very real, very awful pain of sexual disorder rampant in all corners of the church. From clerical child abuse to Me Too to the pornography epidemic, human trafficking, and abortion, there are very different sexual ethics on offer out there, and they all state their claims to being healthy, ethical, and moral. Jesus himself discusses lust and the actions that lead, um, that ensue from lust, uh, not very often, other than his famous suggestion to cut out your eye when it leads you to lust. So we know it's bad. Jesus definitely thinks it's bad, but it's also not as high up on his list of priorities as other things, which is really interesting. Paul also talks more about it, but his words are famously uh, difficult to interpret and have inspired a whole empire of treatises and argument that people follow in widely varying ways. The ancient scheme of the vices reflect this lesser importance, though not its lesser pain. I haven't been ordering them willy-nilly in this series. I've been following the ancient order in which pride, anger, etc. begin the vices, and gluttony and lust end them. Here's why these folks of the past ordered the vices this way. 
The vices of the body can be easier to spot and easier to supplant with virtuous habits than those very spiritual and often very hidden concealed vices that begin the list. It's often pride or anger or avarice lingering behind bodily vices like lust and gluttony that are wreaking the devastation. But we have a hard time grasping this because the bitter, decaying fruits of lust are so painfully obvious in ways that pride's fruits are not. We see the destruction of marriages and community through adultery with horrific clarity. We rage and weep over the abused woman or child and the long-term spiritual, mental, and physical damage that follows. The church dimly recognizes that cultural attitudes about sex outside the church are pretty rotten. The church less fully acknowledges the rottenness comes from within as well. So in this episode, I want to think about the core issue of our attitudes about our bodies and desire rather than specific acts. The basics. Sex itself is not bad, just like the other bodily pleasures of food and drink, material goods, and so on. It's a gift from God, full stop. Yet, like all other gifts, we can elevate it, desire it, shape our lives around it in a way inconducive to our full flourishing as created persons together in community. As Frederick Beekner writes, like nitroglycerin, it can be used either to blow up bridges or heal hearts. Professor DeYoung asks a great question. How should our sexual desires serve our full humanness? I really like her word serve there. Sexual desire neither signifies our full humanity nor undermines it. In its proper place, our bodies, their functions, and pleasures are more gifts that can help us become more human, more like Jesus in learning to love a person. Sex is interpersonal, social, spiritual, and physical. Lust, as bodily desire that has become out of joint, is a barrier to us truly loving Jesus, our neighbor, and ourselves. While chastity, its virtuous counterpoint, heals and, heals and builds bridges. Chastity fosters loving families of many different shapes and sizes and forges bonds of intimacy and joy. Lust, like gluttony, grows as you feed it. The less you curb lust, the more it overwhelms a person. Again, pornography is an instructive example of this. One needs more and more to feel turned on to reach some form of satiation outside of true intimacy. And if you look at pornography statistics at all, which are just completely depressing, you realize quickly that um, the increasing violence of pornography alongside its increasing availability is very well documented. This excess-oriented tendency of lust is also why medieval writers encouraged being careful of the friends and acquaintances you keep in considering your own lust. If you're egging one another on in exploits, unsurprisingly, you're going to keep struggling, even if you're not acting on it. If you're consuming extremely provocative or explicit television shows or books on a regular basis, these desires are more easily regularly accessible in your mind. And this looks different for all types of people. There's not really a one-size-fits-all rule that addresses these things, but it's practical knowledge about lust that medieval people share with us. 
Importantly, as the medieval penitential writers knew very well, the actions of lust are far down the list of lusty items. The first and foremost lustful movements happen in your mind. Like gluttony, lust is reductive. It strips sexual pleasure-seeking down to individual gratification, apart from a love relationship to a person, as DeYoung says. Lust narrows a person, a full person, down to a pleasure receptacle. You don't need to know anything about them. You don't need to care for them. They don't even need to be in the room with you. Obviously, this is the premise of pornography. Objectification is why a consent-based ethics of sex is not enough to solve our culture's sexual issues. Broader secular culture and um, some forms of Christianity teach that anything and everything sexual is permissible and ethically chill, as long as you receive and give consent. Christine Emba has an excellent recent article in the Washington Post, which lays out very clearly some of the problems with centering all sexual ethics on consent and the fuzziness that uh, consent actually is. This centering doesn't do enough to prevent our objectification of each other in our pursuit of sexual pleasure. DeYoung has a really great expression of lust versus love that I want to quote at length. Because humans find true fulfillment in love for God and for each other, sexual expressions of love require real persons. They demand a fully human encounter, not simply a useful or pleasurable exchange. They require the freedom to give ourselves to each other and the willingness to graciously welcome another person in. To strip human sexuality of its link to love can make access to sexual pleasure safer and easier and ostensibly and superficially under our control, perhaps, but the safety we seek in prideful self-provision also walls us off from what we really need. The mechanics of lust are fairly simple. The writer of the medieval book, The Book of Vices and Virtues, notes that lust begins in foolish looking or foolish listening. It escalates to foolish talking and foolish touching. But more so, the foolish looking and hearing that ill-advised sensory input ends in a receptive mind, a mind, as the book says, ready to delight privately in these sights and sounds. Though this is very simple and basic, it's actually really helpful and useful to digest. First, the book's choice of foolish. Lust so often starts out with foolishness. There are a lot of statistics out there, like I said, about pornography, the ultimate self-gratifying, person-reducing, pleasure-seeking. People tend to watch porn when they're stressed, tired, struggling with something. Unsurprisingly, this is also often how affairs start. Marriage feels like a chore or a burden, or you're super stressed, you're seeking some kind of escape or an outlet. We're more open to folly and bad decisions when we're not taking care of our bodies and minds or when we're avoiding the real challenges of faithfulness. Secondly, ready to delight privately is worth unraveling a bit. Private delight is at the core of lust. It's the pleasure that is yours alone or yours foremost, secret not to share. It's putting your sexual desires before all other considerations. And in contrast, intimacy entails shared delight. 
This desire for private delight is also why, despite many years of absolute loads of Christian fixation on modesty, modesty is not the remedy to lust, and it should not be treated as such. A mind ready for private delight will take anything. A Victorian ankle emerging from swaths of massively modest dresses for its solitary pleasures. Don't get me wrong, I believe in modesty for both men and women in a variety of shapes and forms. Like all virtues, it's not one size fits all. Like shorts shorter than a four inch inseam are immodest. There's not hard and fast rules about it. But the idiotic refrain, modest is hottest, reveals the paucity of how a lot of Christians treat modesty in the sick core of lust's private delights. Lust short-circuits modesty back into sexual gratification. Modest is hottest. A man's sexual pleasure in a women's dress. A short-sighted emphasis on modesty also places the blame for others' lechery onto the person whom they are depersonalizing. This is the old, disgusting, ancient idea that by showing skin, a woman was, quote, asking for it or something. If modesty, defined narrowly as showing less skin, were the antidote to lust, no sexual excess would have existed from about 1830 to 1920, because as we all know, this was a period where women showed very little of their bodies. But we know that lust existed during that period. As humans, we're called to be formed into people who view others not as objects for self-gratification or even for our self-fulfillment, which is how many people see marriage now, but as other beloved ones. Sexual self-gratification and sexual shame, both rooted in lust, make it very hard for us to see the belovedness of ourselves and of others. This makes me think of Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, which depicts the absolute ravages of shame after fornication. Arthur Dimsdale is destroyed by his secret sexual sins, not by the sex act itself, but by his terror of revelation and his massive guilt. The affair between himself and Hester Prynne is never even discussed in the book. Very often, Christians live more on the Dimsdale side of things than the sexual gratification side of things. But this kind of living does not destroy the costs and pain of lust at all. Chastity, not modesty, not consent-based sexual ethic, not sexual shame, not even celibacy or virginity, is the counterpoint to lust and its depersonalizing evil. Chastity can include some of these things at times, I would say not sexual shame, but it's its own bigger and broader virtue. Chastity is fairly difficult to define. I was having trouble finding a pithy definition in the sources of the past. Thomas Aquinas defines chastity as the process of making venereal pleasure, as he calls it in a particularly unpleasant phrase subject to our reason. I would add subject to our expansive love for one another and ourselves as people of Jesus. The absence of chastity is not being too weak or lusty to save sex for marriage or something like that, as it's often framed. Lack of chastity can happen within marriages as one partner elevates their pleasures over the other partner's experiences. We see this in pornography use, 
We also see it in what might be called the smoke and hot wife rhetoric that emerges from certain churches all the time. Recently documented in Christianity Today's The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, a church where women are told to give their husband whatever sexual favors they desire, despite the women's own lack of comfort. Chastity has gone wrong in many places because we demand it of certain people and not of others. We've asked it of women and not of men, or of gay folks but not straight folks, or of single people but not married people. In our mission to recognize the image of God in each person, we're all called to chastity, every single one of us. Chastity can also go wrong when we place the burden of our temptations upon others, demanding modesty or particular behaviors out of them instead of focusing on cultivating chastity in our souls. So a famous example of of what some consider chastity is the Billy Graham rule, right? The famous evangelist was never alone with a woman privately, except his wife. And um, this practice may be necessary at particular moments and places, like we're always invited to flee from temptation if you're really feeling tempted. But a hard and fast rule like that tends to transform women from full individuals to uh, constant sources of danger and temptation. Again, depersonalizing. G.K. Chesterton, in his essay, A Piece of Chalk, has a wonderful description of chastity. Virtue is not the absence of vices or the avoidance of moral dangers. Virtue is a vivid and separate thing like pain or a particular smell. Chastity does not mean abstention from sexual wrong. It means something flaming like Joan of Arc. We must substitute the depersonalizing, pleasurable power of lust with something better, something more radiant and more real, not just by stigmatizing human bodies or abstaining from sex or making others feel shame. Chastity is more like courage or devotion, even hospitality, than modesty or a rule-oriented set of practices. It's more like love than mere abstention. I think the closest we get to witnessing chastity in people is not as a blanket set of behaviors. It's in individual marriages or shining individual persons. A marriage that radiates power and peace together through their mutual trust in each other's faithfulness and troth to one another. And chastity appears in lives of celibacy as well. We witness the willed devotion of a person to seeing other souls truly and resisting the urge to use them despite the lack of sexual gratification in their lives that our culture considers impossible to live through. These people single, married, and religious orders out in the world, all different shapes of lives, are safe havens because you know they will not put their pleasures above your personhood, not even in the littlest and most inconsequential ways. Their chastity is radiant and welcoming. What practices foster chastity, according to our medieval friends? Now, (laughs) there are a lot of weird and highly unhelpful medieval tips. For instance, John Cashin, the Desert Father, uh, says that you should avoid moist foods. Um, So you could sit with that one for a minute. But there are some good ones, too. Keeping well your senses, for instance. 
fleeing friends who lead you into doing things that you're uncomfortable with or you don't like. Watching your language, the way you talk about people. If you talk and regularly depersonalize someone in your language, you're going to do that in your actions too. In contrast, the real action of doing good deeds for other people reminds you of God in them, and it helps you to foster that love and grow it in moments when you're not tempted by lust so you can faithfully practice chastity when push comes to shove. They tell us that fasting helps us as gluttony and lust work in similar ways. And of course, prayer. Well, we've done it. We've covered all the seven capital vices and their remedies. And wow, it has been a long haul. Thanks for listening to this series. And I I hope that it was helpful and insightful for you and not a guilt trip or confining or um, shame-inducing, but really freeing as we explore together what it might mean to imitate Jesus in our different and beautifully crafted lives. It was both for me at different times. At times, I felt very guilt-tripped. And at other times, I felt, oh, the potential of beautiful things is huge. And that's what I'm really interested in. I don't ask this often, but if you'd have enjoyed this series, I'd really appreciate your financial support for keeping this podcast alive. You can contribute to my website hosting and book buying fund at www.buymeacoffee.com slash Grace Hammond, H-A-M-M-A-N. Um, that link is also on my Instagram and on my Twitter, if you uh, didn't catch that. I'd also love to hear your thoughts about this or any other episode or which of the seven deadly sins stood out to you or um, any helpful things you've read about them. I'd love to hear all those things. You can find me on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD or Instagram at Old Books with Grace to chat. You can also read the text of any of these episodes at oldbookswithgrace.com if you um, are a visual person and would like to really see something written down. Um, I have a newsletter, Medievalish with Grace Hammond, that comes out once a month. It did not come out this month because I dropped the ball, but. Um, Normally, I fill you in on things I'm working on and really wonderful things I've been reading lately um, to share with you. Next up, the podcast will take a break for a few weeks, but I'll return in May with some really exciting new guests. Can't wait to share them with you. Thank you again for listening and walking with me through these ideas from the past of the good life and examining what can form us now towards a life that loves others well.